Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, my name is Natasha Postel-Vinay and I'm an assistant professor in the Economic History Department. Um, this event forms part of LSE's um, Understanding the UK Economy series and um, it showcases research and expertise on the state of the UK economy and its future. And there is a Twitter hashtag which is hashtag LSE UK Economy. Um, today's event is quite special because we're screening a documentary. And the documentary was produced by the TV channel Arte, um, one of the major TV channels in France and Germany, and was broadcast earlier this year in those countries. This means that today is its first screening in English, um, which makes it a kind of English premiere, right? Xavier <laughs> um, Viltard, the director, you have to pronounce it right, I'll try and do it with a French accent, Xavier Viltard, um, has since the Yellow Vest movement in France and Brexit um, wanted to enhance public understanding of taxation, which seemed to always be a source of discontent. Um, conflict and lack of understanding. For this, there seemed to be no better way than going back in history. And if possible, quite far back, back to the Middle Ages and across several countries, such as France, the UK and Germany. For timing reasons today, we will only be showing the first part of the documentary which covers the Middle Ages up to Thatcher. <laughs> the second part covers Thatcher, the Thatcher years up to today. The documentary features interviews of renowned policymakers and experts. Among those is Jeff Tiley, here with us today. Jeff Tiley has worked as a macroeconomic advisor to HM Treasury and is now senior economist at the Trades Union Congress. He has written numerous articles and posts on British economic history and policy and on the history of economics, and particularly on Keynes and his influence on British economic policy. In his book, Keynes Betrayed, published in 2007, so just before the financial crisis, Jeff showed that although Keynes is often portrayed as being primarily concerned with deficit spending in times of crisis, Keynes was also very much concerned with monetary policy, and in particular, with maintaining a policy of low interest rates in the long run, both to maintain a good level of demand and to reduce the cost of debt service when the national debt is particularly high. A long-term policy of low interest rates could only be achieved through other targeted macroeconomic controls, especially on capital. What this could mean in terms of taxation 
in a period such as today's, well, I'll leave it to Jeff to expand on after the screening. Indeed, the audience will have an opportunity to ask Jeff some questions for 30 minutes after the documentary in the Q&A session. So you're welcome to think about any question you may have during the documentary and make a note of it. After the Q&A session, we will be holding a reception, which you're all welcome to attend just outside there. Germans disappointed by reunification, French yellow vests, British Brexiteers. For years now, the anger had been growing, often triggered by the question, where does my tax money go? Most people don't understand taxation, moan about it, think it needs to be lower, have no idea what proportion is spent on what. In many ways, I think taxation is one of the most extreme actions by a government, but it's also the definition of government, because without taxation, there's no government. Increasingly defiant citizens are facing up to their governments, and taxation is at the heart of these conflicts. In France, it was the carbon tax which lit the flame. For months, thousands took to the streets. People who felt forgotten spoke out, feeling the power of a collective effort. At roundabouts, the yellow vests revive the democratic debate, reclaiming the symbols of the tax revolts of the past. Like the revolutionaries of 1789, they wrote their lists of grievances, outlining their demands and complaints. Four hundred thousand pages were addressed to their elected representatives in the various departments of France. Les gens ont peur d'utiliser ce terme révolution, mais pour moi, on est en début de révolution. No taxation without the sovereignty of the people. By reminding their representatives of this basic rule of democracy, the yellow vest picked up the thread of a long struggle, which in Europe since the Middle Ages has pitted the people against their governments on the issue of taxes. Well, way back in 1215, there was a very unpopular king, King John, and he wanted to raise money to fund his army for various expeditions. And he turned to his aristocrats, his noblemen, and he said, give me the money. And they said, really for the first time in English history, no, we will only give you the money if you in future consult us on things and we are involved in your decision-making. And that was a very small beginning of democracy in Britain. With the Magna Carta, the British were the first in Europe to institute the premises of a parliamentary democracy. In France, the kings had a different way of looking at budgetary requirements. Jusqu'au 13e, 14e siècle, les rois de France ne se financent pas prioritairement avec l'impôt. Les rois de France ont un domaine une propriété foncière, une propriété agricole qui génère des revenus, et ces revenus du domaine royal sont la principale ressource du budget de l'État. 
Très rapidement, néanmoins, euh, ces revenus ne sont pas suffisants pour faire face aux, aux dépenses de l'État. Et notamment à une dépense très très importante qui est la dépense de la guerre. Et les rois usent de leur pouvoir d'imposer euh, des prélèvements sur leur sujet pour euh, alimenter leur, leur budget. C'est la marque en particulier de, 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 de Philippe le Bel. Hein. On se souvient tous des rois maudits euh, et de l'arrière-plan financier qui est évidemment très présent à cette époque. With the Hundred Years' War ruining France's finances, Charles VII claimed the royal prerogative to impose taxes, wielding absolute power. He bypassed the difficulties inherent in taxing the clergy and nobility by choosing to target those who labored to create wealth, the peasants and artisans, the so-called Third Estate, who found themselves squeezed by the royal taxes. C'est exactement à cette époque qu'est créée en France la gabelle, hein, l'impôt sur le sel, qui est un impôt indirect, quelque chose à l'époque de perçu comme extraordinairement impopulaire, puisque ça taxe beaucoup plus ceux qui sont modestes et qui ont besoin de cette denrée de première nécessité que ceux qui ont des revenus plus élevés. To collect the taxes, the king sent out his private militia, the so-called general farmers, who fleeced the people. Le pauvre peuple travaille incessamment. De son travail, il ne lui reste que la sueur et la misère. Tout s'emploie à payer les tailles, la gabelle et autres subventions pour votre majesté. The salt tax provoked a great many revolts, as did the taille, a direct tax based on how much land one owned. On crie qu'il faut exterminer ces sangsues du peuple. Il faut tuer tous ces leveurs de taille, tous ces receveurs qui ruinent la province. The Pitot, the Croquant, the Barefeet, the Jacques, the Red Bonnet, so many movements against those in power. They had nothing to lose and clashed head-on with the king's soldiers. The Jacquerie revolt was violently suppressed and didn't put Louis XIV off creating new taxes to finance his conquests and the building of the Château de Versailles while reducing the French people to extreme poverty. In 1675, the Red Bonnet rose up in Brittany. The repression was brutal. Even bell towers were beheaded for having rung out the chimes of the insurrection. The royal grip was not loosening. The Marchioness of Sévigné expressed her approval at the numbers hanged along the roadsides in Brittany. The people, she thought, must have learned their lesson. Uprisings broke out all over Europe, including in the Holy Roman Empire, a grouping of territorial states ruled by princes with absolute power who pledged their allegiance to the emperor. Im Heiligen Römischen Reich hatten die Territorialstaaten, die absolutistischen Fürsten, das Sagen, die hatten die Steuerkompetenz und die erhoben auch schon die Frühformen der modernen Steuern, Ertragssteuern, Haushaltssteuern, Grundsteuern vor allem natürlich und die Vorformen der indirekten Steuern. Das Reich hatte ja wenig Kompetenzen und hat dann von Beiträgen der einzelnen Staaten gelebt, um einzelne Formen zu finanzieren. When they refused to pay their taxes, 
The people came up against these princes with absolute power. The challenges started to be channeled through legal proceedings. In early 18th century France, the royal taxes were no longer enough to cover the state's expenses. Since no more could be squeezed out of the people, the state had to borrow. By the end of the century, the debt amounted to 110 million louis d'or. To pay this back, Louis XVI had to resign himself to reform. He summoned the Estates General, an assembly of the clergy, the nobility, and representatives of the Third Estate, but in doing so opened the Pandora's box of consent and political representation. La France, à l'époque, est, est, est un pays qui, un petit peu comme aujourd'hui, est passionné par la question de la réforme, mais qui ne réussit pas à la conduire vraiment. Hein, et euh, c'est cette incapacité à, à conduire la réforme fiscale, une réforme de justice, mais aussi une réforme d'efficacité, euh, qui euh, la conduit vers euh, la révolution, qui n'est pas qu'une qu qu révolte fiscale, mais qui est quand même en grande partie née d'un embrasement venu de l'injustice du système fiscal. For the first time in Europe, the people finally had a say in the matter, and they didn't need to be asked twice to send their lists of grievances in their thousands to their representatives of the Estates General. Que les impôts présents et futurs seront également répartis sur tous les citoyens de tous les ordres dans la seule proportion de leurs facultés et sans distinction de rang, de naissance et de privilèges. Les habitants de la ville d'Aigurande demandent la suppression de la corvée. Ils sont imposés à la somme de 1300 livres pour des chemins dont ils sont éloignés, tandis que tous les chemins qui aboutissent à leur ville sont affreux et impraticables. A common thread to grievances from 1789 and 2019 is taxation. The most common subject is that of fair taxes. Égalité de tous devant l'impôt. Chaque citoyen doit contribuer même une petite somme. Nous voulons la protection des biens communs, la fin des privilèges, le droit à la dignité. Stop aux impôts croissants et aux reculs sociaux croissants. La politique est notre affaire et nous nous unissons face à l'urgence sociale. Faire un travail de pédagogie sur les recettes et les dépenses publiques. On parle de tout. On parle économie, on parle politique, on parle argent, on parle chômage, on parle crise, on parle pétrole et on parle aux gens. On n'écoute pas les gens, on fait semblant de les écouter. Et ça, je crois que ça peut rendre les gens fous. Following the Estates General of 1789, revolution broke out. The king was beheaded and the First Republic was born. La Révolution française va être faite justement pour retirer au roi le, le pouvoir de fixer les impôts et le donner à une chambre élue. Et donc la fiscalité... Euh, est elle est consubstantielle avec la démocratie. Le, 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 la démocratie est faite pour que ce soit les citoyens qui votent l'impôt. C'est une vocation première, essentielle du Parlement hein, que de voter l'impôt. La Déclaration des droits de l'homme et du citoyen, dans ses articles 13 et 14, euh, définit tout ça de manière euh, merveilleuse. Hein. Dans l'article 13, elle dit, elle justifie la contribution commune 
pour les dépenses d'administration et la force armée, une contribution commune est indispensable. Elle dit qu'elle doit être répartie entre tous les citoyens, également entre tous les citoyens, ce fameux thème de l'égalité de l'impôt, et selon leurs facultés. Et l'article 14, lui, il dit aussitôt, cette contribution, ce sont les citoyens eux-mêmes ou leurs représentants qui doivent en discuter de la nécessité, de la quotité, de la durée et des modalités précises. Fair taxation, what a lovely idea. But what exactly would be taxed? Logiquement, la fiscalité qui est créée au moment de la Révolution, c'est une fiscalité qui repose sur le foncier. Ce qu'on appelle aujourd'hui la taxe foncière, c'est un impôt qui a été créé au moment de la Révolution. La pensée économique dominante, c'est les physiocrates, ces gens qui pensent que c'est la terre, la richesse agricole qui est à l'origine de toute création de richesse. This way of thinking collided with another revolution, the industrial one, which began in England with the invention of blast furnaces and steam engines. Now wealth was being created from investing in this new machinery and the exploitation of the newly created working class. Throughout Europe, tax systems were adapting to this new economy. On top of property taxes, revenue was now mainly raised by consumption taxes on such products as wine, matches and tobacco. This tax being the same for everyone, irrespective of their income, it hit peasants and laborers the hardest. But these taxes alone weren't enough to cover the new expenses that countries incurred in furthering the development of capitalism. They had to borrow to invest in roads and railways, urban sanitation and colonial conquests. The interest on the growing debt made the rich creditors even richer. Debt became an obsession as the Industrial Revolution opened a new chapter in the history of taxation. Like the revolutionaries of 1789, the conservatives in power in 19th century Britain were asking the same question, how to pay it back? the government needed uh, to raise revenue. Uh, now, an easy way of doing so uh, would be to raise taxes on consumption. But also there was a sense that perhaps excise taxes were not particularly fair. Um, and the idea of fairness was important, um, but shared mainly by um, popular movements in Britain in the 19th century, which really tried to um, bring forward the idea that income taxes were more fair um, than the excise taxes and they should be implemented and, uh, and raised on a larger number of people. Because income tax is supposedly at least uh, has the potential to be progressive, right? So in the sense that those that have a higher income, for example, will be charged um, a higher marginal rate. But the UK government defied the demands of the labour movements. 
while consumption taxes were not raised, there was no hurry to implement a fairer tax system. The newly introduced income tax did not share the burden fairly, since it was not progressive. It was introduced in 1848, well before any European neighbors adopted the system. Twenty years later, Bismarck's Germany, which had just unified its many states into the Reich, was the second country to implement such a tax. Bismarck had two objectives, to consolidate the new German state and to keep in check the demands of the working classes who were now leading the struggle for social justice. In the newly elected parliament of France's Third Republic, there was lively debate. On the one hand, there were the defenders of the status quo, who feared a redistributive tax system that reduced inequality. But increasingly numerous were those who wanted the nation-state to fulfill its protective role, not only militarily, but also socially. Between 1870 and 1906, no less than 210 taxation bills were put before the lower house. Caillot, le grand réformateur des finances publiques françaises et de la fiscalité, va concevoir et tenter de faire passer euh, à l'Assemblée et au Sénat, la Chambre des députés à l'époque, trois impôts, l'impôt sur le revenu, l'impôt sur la fortune, les droits de succession. L'impôt sur le revenu, euh, il va déposer un premier projet en 1901, il va se battre énormément. Euh, en 1907, ils vont arriver à un barème progressif. Et avec la guerre de 14, je crois que c'est en, en août 14, quelque chose comme ça, euh, ça va être le vrai démarrage de l'impôt sur le revenu parce qu'il faut financer l'effort de guerre. It was with the First World War that income tax was established in France in the summer of 1914, with a sort of synthesis of the British and Prussian systems. But it was more symbolic than anything bringing in very little money, especially as income declarations were voluntary and high earners weren't taxed at higher rates. But the war was an expensive business, and the governments involved once again had to fall back on loans. By playing the patriotic card, France, Germany and Britain got their citizens to finance the slaughter. Ten million dead was the price paid by the soldiers. Then there was the vast debt to be paid back, of course, by the people. For the defeated Germans, the bill was even steeper, since the victors forced them to pay war reparations. Piling debt on top of debt amounted to stripping the German people of all they owned when they had already lost their youth in the trenches. One could hear the rumble of revolution. On the ruins of empires, Germany teetered on the brink of Bolshevism. The political powers were quick to react, first with brutal repression, then with the Weimar Constitution, the first democratic constitution in German history, adopted on the 11th of August 1919 along with a large-scale tax reform at last, hatched out by Matthias Erzberger. 
Diese Steuerreform, die war schon ein Schock für die Menschen, insbesondere für die höheren Stände, für die Leute mit höheren Einkommen und Vermögen, weil die jetzt plötzlich deutlich mehr Steuern zahlen musste. In Preußen zum Beispiel war der Spitzensteuersatz 4 Prozent. Nach 1919 lag er bei 60 Prozent, zwar bei hohen Einkommen, aber eben schon spürbar. Ich kenne eine Rede von Erzberger im Reichstag, wo er sinngemäß, sinngemäß jenen, die da im Parlament, die die Seite der Vermögenden vertreten haben, zugerufen hat, mit Blut habt ihr ja nicht, eure Söhne waren nicht im Krieg, eure Söhne waren nicht im Krieg, ihr habt nicht mit Blut, das habt ihr uns bezahlen lassen, die kleinen Leute. Aber da müsst ihr wenigstens jetzt an der Bewältigung der Folgen des, wofür ihr die Verantwortung habt, tragen. Dass man damit nicht bei allen populär wurde, in den zerrissenen Jahren der Weimarer Republik. Er hat übrigens vorher zu seiner Frau gesagt, die Kugel, die mich töten wird, er war ja schon vorher Ziel von Anschlägen gewesen, war auch nicht der Einzige, äh, ist schon geschmiedet. Assassinated on the 26th of August 1921 by a far-right militant, Matthias Erzberger wouldn't get to see the results of his tax reform. Just as the total sum of war reparations to be paid by the vanquished nation was set at 132 billion goldmarks, Germany announced that it couldn't pay. This led, in 1923, to French troops occupying the Ruhr, the collapse of the mark and hyperinflation. The price of basic staples became astronomical. Despite their differences, the French and Germans, brothers and enemies, shared an important idea that those who had survived had to put their hands in their pockets. It was the only way of keeping the debt in check. Originating on the left, the idea that taxation should be an instrument of redistribution and for reducing inequality was one that most people adhered to in the immediate post-war period in the interests of national unity. The tax reform adopted in France in 1920 rubber-stamped the principle of progressive taxation. Henceforth, the wealthiest would have to contribute more than those on more modest incomes. Across the Channel, the opposite happened. Soldiers returning from the war had been promised homes bought by public money. But these homes for heroes drew the ire of the establishment. Splashing out money on the people was out of the question. The owner of the populist Daily Mail, Lord Rothermere, launched a vicious press campaign to nip this brief burst of generosity in the bud. He created this, this outfit or this organization called the Anti-Waste League. And the Anti-Waste League, so rather than talk about home for, Homes for Heroes, the Anti-Waste League seems to have said that we, we can't afford Homes for Heroes because the government wastes a lot of money. And he started this campaign against, against the government. The government of the day appeased him, and they set up uh, something called a Committee on National Expenditure. And this committee was headed by Sir Eric Geddes. The transport minister, Sir Eric Geddes, implemented a series of deep spending cuts known as the Geddes Acts. The Geddes Acts was kind of the most severe peacetime cutting of government spending on record. So, so over two years, 
I think 1921 to 1923, government spending was cut by about a third, which is savage. And, you know, and instantly they cut government spending, they crashed the economy, they caused deflation. It presaged a decade of sort of unemployment of about 10%. The idea that the state shouldn't interfere in people's private lives and should be responsible for as few services as possible, what is known as the minimum state, grew in the 1920s. To get this policy of austerity accepted, an appeal was once more made to the people's patriotism. British people probably themselves, with, they've been told about the credit of Britain, right, the importance of uh, keeping credible commitments uh, to paying back the debt and how that is sort of linked to the prestige of Great Britain. There's already a culture of paying taxes um, and Britons are okay to some extent to see their taxes being raised uh, heavily in 1920, especially consumption taxes, which are deemed you know, the least fair types of taxes. Contrary to Britain, the French tax culture was still in an embryonic state. Rich and poor alike struggled to accept income tax, which they called the sucker's tax. The wealthiest found safe havens for their fortunes, discovering the joys of tax evasion. C'est dans les années 20 que les banques suisses commencent à faire dans la presse française des publicités euh, à l'égard des Français les plus riches pour leur dire vous pouvez mettre votre argent dans les banques en Suisse pour échapper à l'impôt sur le revenu qui venait d'être créé. Donc on voit bien que le comportement d'évitement de l'impôt, euh, il connaît euh, un, un regain à partir du moment où euh, on taxe davantage les revenus les, les plus élevés. C'est devenu une industrie importante pour la place financière suisse. C'est d'ailleurs euh, pour protéger cet afflux euh, égoïstement que la Suisse a inventé entre guillemets le, le secret bancaire parce que ce fameux secret bancaire, il date quoi, du début des années 30, pas avant. Et euh, il a servi largement à faire en sorte que les Suisses ne collaborent pas avec les autorités euh, françaises, allemandes ou italiennes, euh, qui, elles, à la sortie de la guerre et au moment de la crise, se sont rendues compte de, de l'évasion massive des, des capitaux de leurs ressortissants. Rich Germans used Switzerland as a hub to avoid the high taxation and inflation of their homeland. Soon the amount of equity managed by the Swiss bankers was equivalent to the German debt, the largest in the world in the early 1930s. By allowing such colossal sums to disappear into the safes of the Swiss Confederation, these countries were betraying the principle of tax equality. The little people had no choice but to obey the rules, while certain others felt entitled to flout them. The state's coffers were necessarily depleted, and the resentment of those who felt they were being cheated grew. The social cohesion in all countries was severely weakened when in 1929 the stock market crashed. Following the Wall Street crash, Europe teetered. The Great Depression pushed millions into unemployment. 
the Western nations devalued their currencies as a way of containing their debt. Once again, it was the people who picked up the tab. In France, the middle classes were weakened by a policy to reduce the public deficit, which increased unemployment. To this social crisis was added a political one, with the rise of anti-parliamentarianism. This stirring of rebellion was heightened by the National Federation of Taxpayers, who opposed workers' unions, lambasted civil servants, called on the peasants to join them, and threatened members of parliament who had different opinions. This anger about taxation was to the advantage of vehement far-right organizations. Parties on the left came together in the Front Populaire to resume the battle for fairer tax distribution and work for better social justice. Not unlike the Yellow Vests of 2019, who decades later tried to re-establish a fairer tax system. On est en train de pomper les mêmes personnes et toujours les gens d'en bas. Et les plus riches, non, sont toujours dans leur sphère et eux, ils n'ont rien à payer. Ils sont toujours protégés. L'unité qu'il y a ici, mais c'est du incroyable, c'est du jamais vu. Les gilets jaunes, les stylos rouges, les, les blouses blanches, les gilets roses, les assistantes maternelles, tous unis à même peuple, dans la rue. Peut-être pas violemment, mais dans la rue. On ne lâche rien et on continue. For months, the Yellow Vests hoped for a convergence with other social movements. It was such a convergence, a very rare phenomenon, which made the election of the Front Populaire possible. But once elected, it had the economic crisis to contend with. In December 1936, the Front Populaire voted for increasing taxation on the upper middle classes, thereby making income tax more redistributive. The French Communist Party became a force to be reckoned with, managing to set in stone some of their finest social victories, the workers enjoyed a brief enchanted period. At the same time in Germany, there was much less cause for rejoicing. Chancellor Brüning's strict austerity policies had brought the country to its knees and provided a route to power for the Nazis. They would use taxation in two diametrically opposed ways, lowering it for some, while criminally raising it to hammer the Jewish population. Die Nationalsozialisten haben das Steuersystem dann in den Dienst ihrer verbrecherischen Politik gestellt. Die sukzessive Enteignung der jüdischen Bevölkerung erfolgte zunächst einmal über die sogenannte Reichsfluchtsteuer, die dazu schon also unter Brüning, also vor der NS-Regime, dazu eingeführt wurde, um eben Flucht ins Ausland zu belasten. Wenn Leute emigrieren wollten, mussten die dann 25 Prozent ihres Vermögens abgeben. Dann 1938, nach dem Pogrom hat man dann eine Sonderabgabe auf die jüdische Bevölkerung erhoben. 
auch noch mal 25 oder 30 Prozent. Und dann natürlich im Zuge der Deportationen hat man den Leuten das Vermögen weggenommen. Das wurde dann zwar grundsätzlich vom Staat beschlagnahmt, wurde aber teilweise von Parteiorganisationen, Parteibonzen dann auch äh, privat äh, äh, den Leuten praktisch weggenommen. Despite the distant sounds of jackboots, in the United Kingdom, the objective remained a minimum state. The budget red box supposedly contains the details of spending to come. In what has now become a ritual, it is brandished by the Chancellor to the press, and it is the political event of the year. But in 1938, like everywhere else in Europe, Lord Simon was forced to appeal to the war effort. Taxes are only popular with people who haven't got to pay them. The contributions they are making to the country's defense are the contributions of a free people determined to maintain its freedom and ready to play its part in promoting peace by making Britain safe and strong. The Second World War was the ultimate consequence of the economic crisis. In 1942, while London was being bombed, William Henry Beveridge handed in the report that bore his name. It advocated state intervention to achieve full employment and turned upside down the economic doctrines implemented during the Great Depression, putting forward a post-war reconstruction model that was the opposite of the infamous Geddes Acts. With this report, the United Kingdom was about to tone down the minimum state. The people who resisted Nazi barbarity would benefit from a hitherto unimaginable burst of generosity. Along with the battle for fairer redistribution came a new revolution, that of social security. It's hard to imagine if you read the report. It's a pretty dry document, highly technical. But at the time, it sold more copies than any government report ever. People were queuing up around the corner uh, on the Kingsway, around the corner from the LSE, to buy copies, ordinary citizens. And there was a huge industry of little pamphlets that explained to people what the beverage report meant. Why was that? Because it, people understood that this was a fundamental reordering of the relationship between the citizen and the state, and what citizens could expect from the state. The key thing in the, in the beverage report was that it was, a, it was a social insurance. So the, the public made contributions, so-called national insurance contributions, to protect themselves against risk of, of hardship in the future. So they're about unemployment, they're about sickness, and they're about disability. So they're about situations when you're unable to work. So they're sort of classic area of social insurance. But then, of course, it broadens out to other life events uh, in particular childbirth and, and retirement, so that, that, that becomes part of it, and that's all part of Beveridge's scheme. And there was more. So that there could be no repeat of the traumas of the Great Depression, the unemployed were no longer held responsible for losing their jobs. They were no longer shirking layabouts, and it was the state's duty to protect them when times got tough. Paying back the war debt could wait. The introduction of Social Security brought in a new era, that of the social debt. And so you've got something quite extraordinary going on in 1947 around uh, 
under Attlee's government, um, and Attlee decides that the welfare state is going to be expanded, the British fiscal state is going to spend even more money than it had during the war. It was Clement Attlee, Prime Minister in Britain's first Labour government, who established the NHS. This leaflet is coming through your letterbox one day soon. Read it carefully. It tells you what the new National Health Service is and how you can use what it offers. It's always quite amusing when the Tories in this country say how much they love the National Health Service because they opposed it being set up at the time. Um, and, but, I mean, there was such popular support for it, for changing a system where you didn't have to pay to go and see a doctor which obviously if you didn't have much money you couldn't afford to, to pay for. Um, it was so popular, it was a big issue, and it still is. The welfare state didn't spring out of nothing, but it was after the Second World War that it got a decisive second wind. In the United Kingdom, Germany and France, the fledgling social security systems that had been cobbled together since the Industrial Revolution were being consolidated it was still all about reducing inequality, but now also about rebuilding the economy with a labor force less reluctant to actually go to work. Il y a deux grands modèles de financement de la protection sociale. Hein. Il y a le modèle allemand qui est fondé sur des cotisations sociales. Et puis, euh, il y a le modèle anglais qui, lui, fait financer la protection sociale par l'impôt. Quand on fait financer la protection sociale par des cotisations sociales, à l'origine, dans le modèle bismarckien, on la réserve à ceux qui payent les cotisations et à leurs ayants droit. Donc c'est un modèle qui est très adapté aux salariats, mais dont, en théorie, les droits qui en résultent ne sont pas universels pour toute la population. Alors que le modèle anglais, c'est un modèle qui repose sur l'impôt et dont le bénéfice est ouvert à toute la population. In France, the all-embracing ambitions of the National Council of the Resistance extended the gains of the Front Populaire with the creation of the social security system in 1945. But it had to contend with the post-war economic and social realities. Eclipsing the class struggle, there now sprang up the new social categories of salaried employee, peasant and self-employed. National solidarity worked on a sliding scale. On ne veut pas forcément mélanger les risques des uns euh, avec les autres. Le consentement à payer se construit dans le consentement à partager des risques avec un groupe, avec d'autres, parce que je pense qu'un jour, ça va me revenir. Ça, c'est une logique qui est très importante et qui différencie vraiment la protection sociale euh, et la cotisation sociale de l'impôt. L'autre paramètre avec lequel doivent compter les concepteurs euh, de la sécurité sociale 1945, c'est le fait que Le pays est ruiné, l'économie est détruite, et donc c'est une sécurité sociale avec les moyens d'un pays exsangue, d'un pays pauvre. The economic situation was even worse in Germany. The spectre of bankruptcy haunted the population once again. For the second time that century, the Deutsche Mark was worthless. And soon the country was split in two. On one side was the zone occupied by the capitalist allies. On the other was the zone controlled by the communists and their Soviet allies. In 1949, the capitalist Federal Republic of Germany 
fired up the Weimar Republic model, opting for a market economy regulated by a welfare system. Nach dem Kriege gab es eine breite Mehrheit in Deutschland für eine soziale Gesetzgebung, für einen Sozialstaat. Die CDU Konrad Adenauers beispielsweise hat nach dem Zweiten Weltkrieg sich eingesetzt für Verstaatlichung der Industrien, für einen funktionierenden Sozialstaat, und zwar üppigeren Sozialstaat, als er in der Weimarer Republik noch bestand. Also man wollte einen starken Staat, ein gerechtes Steuersystem und einen starken Sozialstaat. On the other side, the German Democratic Republic adopted the economic canons of the Soviet bloc, the abolition of private property and a nationalized economy. The very opposite of the liberal minimum state, the socialist state covered all social needs, and East Germany was practically free of taxation. In both the East and the West, the politicians in power were keen for their side to be seen as the true Germany, the one with the happiest people. West watched East like a pot about to boil, and vice versa. In Ostdeutschland hat man immer auf Westdeutschland geschaut. Und man hat versucht, es besser zu machen als die Westdeutschen. Es war natürlich mehr Gleichheit, aber Gleichheit eben bei deutlich geringerem Wohlstand. Es gab keine Arbeitslosigkeit, aber es gab natürlich auch entsprechend niedrige Löhne. Und es gab eben für alle eine Betreuung des Staates von der Geburt bis zum Lebensende. Nur das Niveau war viel, viel niedriger. Und deshalb war der Vergleich mit dem westdeutschen Sozialstaat eine Herausforderung für die Ostdeutschen, weil sie ja gesehen haben, die Westdeutschen leben besser als die Ostdeutschen. With the Cold War as the backdrop, the Germans in the East and the West were locked in a permanent contest. Aber der ostdeutsche Sozialstaat, wie überhaupt die kommunistischen Staaten, haben den westlichen Sozialstaat mitbestimmt, weil die immer schon damals dominierende Wirtschaft natürlich Angst davor hatte, dass in Ostdeutschland oder in den kommunistischen Staaten ein besserer Sozialstaat wäre. Also war praktisch das, die Existenz des Ostblocks eine Garantie auch für einen starken Sozialstaat in Westdeutschland. This situation in Europe, with the communists on one side competing with the capitalists on the other, thus helped to consolidate the West's welfare states. In the West, the economic recovery of the 1950s drove up wages. More people started to pay income tax, which itself was becoming more progressive. Never had the tax rates for the top earners been so high. People were living better and longer than ever before. The consumer society flaunted itself as a new paradise. This prosperity, combined with policies encouraging childbirth, drove the baby boom. Social spending increased along with the need for more infrastructure. How was this economic boom to be financed? 
Since little more could be taking off taxpayers and income tax, could the solution be to fall back on that miraculous system which had proved its worth since the dawn of time, a consumption tax? In France, in 1954, a tax inspector, Maurice Lauré, had the clever idea of inventing a single, indirect tax on goods paid by consumers. This was the famous value-added tax, or VAT. C'est un impôt qu'on appelle à paiement fractionné. Il est acquitté aux différents stades du processus de production, mais tant qu'on n'est pas arrivé au consommateur final, celui qui paye la TVA a la possibilité de se faire rembourser la TVA qu'il a lui-même acquittée sur ses achats. Ce qui fait que les entreprises se font rembourser une bonne partie de la TVA qu'elles payent et pour elles, les choses sont plutôt indolores. C'est quelque chose qui est ingénieux. At the same time, the tax inspection system was intensified, another step increasing the state's power to intervene in private affairs. For better or worse, filling out one's tax returns became a part of life. En attendant votre avertissement, avez-vous songé à verser votre premier tiers provisionnel C'est fait, monsieur. Ah, très bien. Alors songez à verser le second. Hélas. Conflicts between the social categories became more common. Salaried employees came across as privileged in the eyes of the self-employed. The latter had to keep their books scrupulously at the risk of fines. They started to coalesce around a Dordogne stationer, Pierre Poujade, to protest about tax inspections. Nous proposons une réforme fiscale qui fasse percevoir l'impôt le plus près possible de la source pour éviter le maximum de fraude. Pour la bonne raison, c'est que les 800 milliards rentreront dans les caisses de l'État et ensuite ça nous débarrassera des contrôleurs. Despite the resentment, the state couldn't give up its tax inspections, nor its VAT, which was so practical with household spending enjoying such a boom. La TVA, c'est la taxe qui permet d'éviter de se poser la question des autres impôts. Hein, et euh, euh, qui, au fond, est très commode, puisqu'elle est à la fois peu dommageable sur le plan économique, hein, qu'elle est à peu près un dollar pour le consommateur qu'il a totalement intégré dans le prix. On paye des biens toutes taxes pour la plupart des Français. La connaissance du prix hors taxe n'a pas vraiment de sens. Et par ailleurs, c'est une taxe qui est d'une stabilité remarquable puisque la consommation qui en constitue la base est sans doute ce qu'il y a de plus stable dans notre économie. The common market opened in 1967. Customs duty on goods faded, and merchandise could circulate much more easily. The construction of a European economy was in full swing, and all the member states adopted VAT, that oh-so-profitable tax. Aujourd'hui encore, la TVA, c'est le principal impôt de, de l'État en France, mais très très loin devant les autres impôts. Là où l'impôt sur le revenu euh, ramène 70 milliards d'euros, la TVA ramène 125-130 milliards d'euros. It's no coincidence that today's yellow vests have made VAT one of their main targets. Baisse, voire suppression des taxes sur les produits de consommation nécessaires à la survie de l'espèce humaine. La TVA sur les produits de première nécessité, alimentation, hygiène, habillement, tout simplement scandaleuse. Augmenter la TVA sur les produits de luxe pour équilibrer un peu. Arrêter d'assassiner, de plomber, de taxes en tout genre les artisans, les commerçants. Pour l'ambiance, il faut se réchauffer. 
French bosses had to weather the storm brought about by the May 1968 riots. Purchasing power was on the rise as wages increased, especially the minimum wage, which leapt up by 35%. Social mobility greatly benefited the working classes. Was the golden age of fair redistribution finally within reach? The oil crisis of 1974 trampled all over this hope. Never before in peacetime had the countries of Western Europe suffered such a shock. Hitherto cheap energy increased in price fourfold, driving up businesses' production costs. To maintain their margins, companies laid off workers left, right and center. Mass unemployment, not seen since the war, now reared its head again. Having been designed to function on full employment, this social model now revealed its limitations. Once again, cash had to be found, and quickly. What if a wealth tax was the solution? Plans for a tax on capital were once again part of the zeitgeist. It was discussed during Giscard d'Estaing's seven-year term as president, and was one of the 101 propositions put forward by the left-wing coalition which came to power in France in 1981. Nous savons bien que l'impôt sur les grandes fortunes ne sera jamais plébiscité par les détenteurs des grandes fortunes. Mais la réforme fiscale voulue par le pays, qu'on le veuille ou non, est en marche et il importe qu'elle soit efficace et juste. Le, le texte était déjà très bien avancé. On n'était pas loin du moment où il allait falloir euh, boucler, euh, parce que c'était dans la loi de finances, hein, on avait des délais euh, très ce qu'ils étaient. Euh, commence à arriver de l'Elysée l'idée de « oui, mais alors comment on va faire euh, avec les petits commerçants, avec les artisans, avec les maisons des pêcheurs euh, ?» Et puis ça risque de... de les, les, les propriétaires des grandes entreprises familiales vont être obligés d'aller à l'étranger. Donc comment ça arriver Et ça se prend la forme de l'outil de travail alors, je dois dire que pendant un mois, j'ai fait note sur note, pour qui était envoyé par euh, Laurent Fabius à l'Elysée, pour expliquer que si on faisait ça, que ça voulait dire que les seuls qui ne paieraient pas d'impôts sur la fortune en France seraient les gens qui étaient très riches. Juste avant le dépôt, il devait y avoir une grande intervention du président de la République. On ouvre la télé et il dit « j'ai décidé d'exonérer l'outil de travail ». C'est ce que je cherche aujourd'hui Ayant fait accepter le principe de l'impôt sur la fortune, ayant exempté l'outil de travail, ce que je cherche, ou ce que j'ai cherché, c'est de faire entrer dans notre législation cet impôt nécessaire. And yet, despite the considerable exemptions, capital took flight to Switzerland. The wealth tax, for the most part, missed its target. Bringing in very little, it made only a symbolic contribution to reducing asset inequality. Would this be the swan song of the battle for fairer redistribution? At the same time, another refrain started to be heard in the US and UK. Too much taxation kills tax revenues. Or, as summed up in Margaret Thatcher's ter slogan, there is no alternative to economic liberalism. For the next few decades, this refrain would obsess Western democracies, leading to a gradual dismantling of the welfare state. Was everything that the people had acquired over the previous century doomed to disappear?
a few hundred years here. Um, I'm not sure we're going to be able to get through them. Um, but hopefully you have thought about um, specific questions that you might like to ask. And by the way, if you've got questions about today or the post-Thatcher era, that's of course still a possibility, even though it wasn't covered in the documentary. <laughs> um, as you know, the second part does cover that part, and we've both been interviewed for the second part as well. Um, so we would be very happy to, well, especially Jeff will be very happy to answer questions. Um, okay, so uh, should I open to the floor? Does anyone have a question? Yes, Eric? Thanks, uh, that's interesting. I don't know which of you to address this to, but one thing, like, I, I didn't really uh, quite understand, and I, maybe they're getting to that at the end because I'm less familiar with the tax systems in Europe than I am in the U.S., but when does capital gains tax um, come in, and, and was there kind of political debates about the level of capital gains tax? Because obviously that's very important in the United States today. Um, why is it that you pay less on your capital gains than you do on your income, for instance? Eric, is your question about capital gains tax on, so is your question about when it arose in the US or when it arose No, no, in just the like US? how does it fit into this kind of European picture? Because they, they did talk about like a wealth tax, but you know, when does cap, do people consider capital gains a wealth tax? Like when does it come in? How does it fit into that kind of conversation? Uh, so I don't know the answer to that. Um, well, thank you for having me first. Um, <laughs> I'm very pleased to be at this premiere. Um, which strikes me as, I don't know when it was made, but it's, it's still chillingly relevant today. Um, Natasha was staying at the start, the Gilets Jaunes were maybe back in France. Uh, we're back again facing another version of the Geddes Axe under our new Prime Minister, although hopefully not as savage. Um, and I did warn Xavier before we did this film that I didn't, tax wasn't really my thing. Because uh, I do sort of macro, and I might might come back to that. Um, but it's a very interesting lens with which to view the the sort of hist a long history, and in particular the history of the post-war world, and the switch the switch from a sort of welfare state uh, to to leaving it behind, which is where we got to at the end. Um, capital gains tax. I don't know when it I don't know when it first came in, and how much it is. I know that it's in play at the moment. Um, the TUC. I mean, in general, I'm not going to answer specifically for the TUC, but the TUC has a policy that capital gains tax should be equalised, at least with income tax. Um, and there is a, you know, as, as you said, the film's relevant, and there is a, there is a growing sense of the, of the inequity of the system 
again, we can come back to the extent to which we need to tax to reform it, but there is a debate at the moment about uh, the, those with the broadest shoulders should be paying more on capital gains tax is an obvious way to come in. There are, there are plenty of people, of course, campaigning for wealth taxes, uh, other, other areas that we, we talk a lot about are bankers' bonuses, um, record year for bankers' bonuses and things like that. So, so I'm afraid I don't know the specifics, but it, it is, in, you know, it's back in play and it's important, it's back in play and it's kind of indicative of, of everything that that film was about, isn't it? That um, people can, can get away with paying lower taxes via capital gains tax and things. Yeah, interestingly, actually, I don't know either when capital gains tax was introduced um, in the UK. It might have been around, I don't know, in, sometime in the post-war period, like the 60s or something like that. But the, um, quite interestingly, the income tax, uh, which dates back to, you know, 1799, um, so with William Pitt initially, um, aimed to tax any kind of income, including um, capital income. And the thinking was at the time that capital income should be taxed even more in some ways than uh, other kinds of income, than that labor income, for example, um, because capital income was supposed to be unearned income, right? And so it was meant to be idle income, right, coming from non-work basically and so should be taxed more but then eventually for some reason in the 1960s or so when they introduced VAT, um, capital gains tax um, there was kind of opposite thinking for some reason when you'd expect the thinking to be yeah. the other way around and it's, yeah. and it's interesting yeah. that nowadays the TUC it's it's yeah. trying to yeah sort of go back to what things were supposed to be like back in the 18th and 19th centuries. Yeah. Yeah. Is another question? Hi there. Um, I'm just wondering, do you, do you believe that the current British electorate is well informed about the benefits, or the positive benefits, or the potential po positive benefits of taxation? And if not, what role do you think the media has played in that? And you know, what could they do to, to change that? Sorry, I didn't quite catch the first, your very first sentence. Right. Um, do you believe that the, Brit the current British electorate or the British public are aware of the positive benefits of taxation? Ah, interesting um, question. I mean, I think when, when people do polls, the, the usual response to opinion uh, to polling is that people would pay more tax uh, for better public services. That seems to be, I mean, maybe it's just a platitude and maybe people just feel obliged to say it. Uh, whether that's where present debate is, I don't know. Um, political parties are cautious about policies to raise taxes at most elections. Liberal Democrats always have a policy of putting 1p on income tax and giving it to the NHS. But I think they didn't put it in the latest manifesto. So it is, so you know, to go to your question, uh, no, I don't think electorates are fully uh, cognizant with the, with the potential benefits of taxation. Um, and some of the, the features of the film uh, are, st are still relevant. Um, I, what would I say? I mean, I, I think you know, there, there's a, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of fact there's a lot of factors in play at the moment, aren't there? I mean, I think, and th and this would be my general Keynes point 
about the whole thing is that there is a macroeconomic context to all of this um, and there is there was a macro macroeconomic context to the to the changes that happened in the 1940s and there's a macroeconomic context at, at present so at present we we have a, we had a global financial crisis and we had austerity policies and while people were suffering those austerity policies they were asked to pay more taxes and under those conditions people people were unhappy they, they didn't find that very compelling so which i think is a kind of different a different case to the to the general case uh, and i think you know the going back to the keynes point the keynes point would be that the economy had been badly run and there would be a better way of running it it's been badly run in the past so you get crisis and there would have been a, and there's a better way to run it in the future and if you run the economy better you get more jobs you get higher income you get higher tax revenue and there's a virtuous circle like that so i think there's a sort of part that story should be overlaid onto the the story that that Xavier told that it's it wasn't just a sort of mental change to taxes it, it wasn't suddenly that everybody saw that if we were taxed fairly and we spent some money on good social provision then that would be a good thing which is and obviously that is a good thing but there was a a broader feature to the post-war economy which was that some of the mistakes of the interwar years had been repaired full employment policies were in place and the and i guess it was easier to do you know the atlee government didn't tax people in order to build the welfare state the atlee government had a full employment policy that enabled them to build the welfare state so there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts here and i've gone away from your question a bit but i do think the macro context is is incredibly important and maybe we come back come back to that no, of course as well. it is yes yeah. um another question here in the middle well, I'm glad you brought the subject of Keynes up because I was going to take it away from the subject towards the macro thing by saying that the narrative in the early 70s was the failure of the Keynesian pump, as it were, the Keynesian accelerator, and the arrival of what was called stagflation, where you basically you put your foot on the accelerator and all that happens is the sort of engine chokes on the petrol. What you do is force up inflation. I wonder if you'd like to comment on that, given your macro expertise. Yeah, I'd much prefer to comment on that. Um, so, so I'd say so this book that I wrote um, was called Keynes, Keynes Betrayed Provocatively. Um, and as Natasha said at the start, I, I wanted to make this point that Keynes spent as much time talking about monetary policies as he did, uh, as he did talking about fiscal policies, and specifically... Uh, he talked a lot about the long-term rate of interest and he talked about a lot about the global monetary architecture that would that affected the long-term rate of interest but that but in a sense that's a bit abstract i think what what keynes really the point i would stress is that that keynes was concerned with a, a diagnosis of what caused crisis he wasn't just he wasn't primarily concerned with how you fix crisis when crisis happens. He was concerned with a diagnosis of, of what led to crisis. So we then fast forward uh, through the Great Depression, and, and you know, he, he made these conclusions in the 1920s. Uh, we have the Great Depression, 
we have the start of reform in the 1930s in some countries. We had Roosevelt, we had the Popular Front in France and under Léon Blum. Um, and so some reform begins, and then in this, after the Second World War, there's an extensive international effort to reform. I'm sure you all know this. But, but again, it, it's, it's context for the post-Second World War policies. And after the Second World War, as far as, as far as I can judge, I think the important, the most important features after the Second World War were, and it was a, a global monetary environment that was more conducive to growth or to full employment, if you like. I don't, the curious thing about growth is that Keynes never talked about growth, but all we come to, you know, yet all we talk about since the Second World War is growth. So there was an environment that was more conducive to full employment. But somewhere along the way, uh, this, the goalpost shift, well, just I'll talk about the goal, the goalpost shift to growth. Uh, there's, there's good books about this. A, a guy called Matthias Smeltzer wrote a book called The Hegemony of Growth or Hegemony of GDP, which is about how it kind of took over in the post-war years. And you had institutions like the, mainly the OECD, the Organization, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, who set out growth targets of sort of roughly 4%, 5% a year. So somewhere along the way, the goalposts move from full employment, we start chasing growth. And we not only start chasing growth, I mean, the most public growth target that they put in place was in 1960 or 1961, which was 4% GDP growth a year at a time of full employment. So now, you know, even, even normal macroeconomics would predict you get inflation at that point. So my, my very roundabout, yes, yeah, so that's a, 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 my long answer to your, to your point is, yeah, we did get, we, we did get inflation in the 1970s, but I think we lost, we lost what Keynes was trying to do somewhere along the way. Um, and we, we chase growth, and we've been chasing growth ever since. You know, they've actually managed to get high growth in the 1960s and 70s, but as you say, it goes horribly wrong. But you know, growth is still the number one target, even though we can't hit it. You know, even you know, trustonomics was about getting higher growth, wasn't it? Um, but increased, we're increasingly unsuccessful at getting it. Um, but it's but it's but it's become problematic for all sorts of other reasons, not least Matthias Smeltzer's concern about the environment. Yes, here at the front. Is it on? Oh, it is, sorry. Okay. Well, thank you. I, I have to say I really don't like being reminded of for just how long the Daily Mail has been a force for darkness. Mm. Uh, nothing's changed there. Yeah. Uh, but then you the film remarked on the popularity of the beverage report. I just wondered if you could cast around today and say, well, where is today, where or who is today's beverage and what, what might he be saying? A universal... Yeah, I, really, I wish what what might beverage how, how do you represent, how do you re represent uh, the social contract that beverage created? Yeah. Contra the day I, you made. I, sadly, I don't know. Um, it was kind of interesting. Manish Shafiq was on the video, wasn't she? And, and there was this moment during the pandemic. Build back better was the catchphrase. We, we, everyone was using it. Um, we used it. And there was a sense that we wanted to come out of the pandemic and do things differently. Because in, in the, the pandemic 
kind of taught us that we could do things def differently in a way that you know there was this massive crisis and then it turned out that we could borrow loads of money and we could look after the economy, we could look after jobs, we could look after incomes. And it was broadly successful. In fact, a lot more successful, I think, than most people thought it would be. And then there was this point uh, during the pandemic when Manish Shafiq, uh, the, the, is it the Director General of the IMF and various others were calling for exactly this. They were, they were calling for a beverage report and they were talking about Keynes one of my bugbears which we could come back to is it's always beverages and canes not the labor party or anybody else but they were they were appealing for you know a, a thinking like we had at the end of the second world war and they thought that we might have that that when we came out of the pandemic and for a moment there was a sort of seemed to me there was a glimmer of hope but then it was dashed wasn't it and it and it's been dashed by the global inflation and the switch of attitudes from the central banks are, you know, I find it astonishing that we're already, you know, within, you know, I don't think the pandemic hasn't ended, has it? But, um, you know, with lockdowns and everything mostly ended, at least in Europe, where, you know, the, the idea of building back better is a very long way away. I, uh, you know, obviously it's, it's the role of trade unions. It should be the route to, to put out arguments for, building back better, we, we probably haven't given up on that phrase. It, it should be the left as well, and the, the Labour Party are beginning to put arguments together that it doesn't have to be like this. But it, but it, I think it, I suppose it's striking, maybe, maybe one of the things that's striking, you know, at one level I'm dissing beverage, and you know, it's not just about beverage and canes, but maybe there aren't these figures in academia at the moment who are calling for the kind of change that beverage and canes were calling for back then. I don't know why that could be. I mean, that's a, that's a separate question almost, isn't it? But yeah, I think, it, I think the short answer, yeah, it's it, momentarily it was there, but it's now conspicuous by its absence. And it seems like austerity steamrolls everything before itself, doesn't it? Yeah. Don't have happy answers. Another hand at the front here. Thank you. Um, Manush Shafiq actually has got a book, which is an attempt to do her own beverage report. Yeah. Um, so uh, there, there is a chance. But I actually did want yeah. to ask you about that. I was going to ask about the story of taxes that we, that we just heard. Because it's very, it's very dramatic. You know, makes, for, yeah. makes for good TV, right? Yeah, surprisingly. But, it <laughs> <laughs> but I wondered what you thought was, the, what, what was left out here. If, and if you had to look at it, you know, you've both thought hard about taxes over time. What would be the one thing that you thought maybe should have been brought in? Maybe it would have made less good TV, but maybe it would be the thing that we should understand about taxes and their historical impact or importance. I mean, I, I thought politics was a bit missing, to be honest. Um, and maybe I've alluded to that in previous answers. And, and I have a sense of a, you know, a sort of technocratic policy. You know, there was a bit about Bismarck, wasn't there? There's so, so much information about Bismarck, uh, fearing the left, and so therefore putting, beginning to put in place kind of welfare state policies, uh, rudimentary back then. And, you know, I, I think the left had, the left in Britain 
had tr trouble getting their head round whether, whether to support the beverage report or not, because at one level they saw it as a gift to Winston Churchill, who was, the, who was going to be rivalling the Labour Party in the post-war election, so was supporting the beverage report um, sensible? I, I don't know. In fact, I don't know the answer. I don't know how far they went. Um, and I know that the, what, a point that I wanted to make in the film was there's a, there's a beverage quote when he says that pretty much everything in the beverage report was consistent with the policies of the TUC. So the TUC were lobbying for these policies and there was one that was different or something. So, that there, was, so there was a big political dimension going on behind. And I think, you know, in particular in the context of the Great Depression, my, my earlier history isn't so good, but certainly in the in the context of the Great Depression, the, the left, it, it strikes me that around 1929 and 1930, the, the left had reached a kind of critical mass around the world. I mean, I, didn't, I guess Roosevelt didn't describe himself as a socialist, did he? But he, he was pretty close, or, you know, I'll take it these days. Uh, you know, Scandinavia, turned, most of Scandinavia turned left over this period. Uh, as, we, as we were saying, France dabbled, but they were very, you know, they were very, they were, they a lot of very, you know, as far as I, my, my recollection is Blum nationalises the Bank of France, which is effectively what Roosevelt did in the States. Um, Blum does Matignon, is that, is that right? And Roosevelt does Wagner acts, and they both, both of those acts strengthen trade unions. So there's, you know, there's a big political dimension and maybe the, the film errs more on the side of the technocrat. You know, the politics are there, but it's almost like they're being led by the technocrats, whereas you, you could probably argue that the technocrats were as much being led by the politicians at the time and, you know, maybe still. Yeah, I would say, I would add to that that... Um... Regarding France, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the, some of the members of the audience here who are British and are watching this and wondering, but what are the French complaining about? They're being taxed a lot more than in the UK and much more fairly than in the UK. So how come they're still complaining? Um, and uh, I think that maybe there's something that wasn't perhaps explained well enough in the documentary uh, they touched upon the issue of social security, but I think they didn't explain well enough that even in France today, a lot of the taxes, well, first of all, come from VAT, that's actually been said, um, but a lot of the tax revenue also comes from social security contributions. Um, so not really from income tax itself, but from the social security contributions. Uh, which is the equivalent of national insurance in, in the UK. Um, and social security contributions tend to be a lot flatter than income tax. So income tax is, is fairly progressive, uh, depending on which country you look at, but in most countries it's fairly progressive, uh, including in the UK, um, and especially in France, I would say, along with other Scandinavian countries. Um, but a lot of the tax revenue actually comes from non-progressive taxes, uh, such as VAT and social security contributions. Um, and it's, we have that dichotomy in, in Britain as well. 
Uh, we have it in various countries. Um, but maybe this is why you still have discontent in countries that have quite a progressive tax system. Now, of course, there's other issues such as you know, tax evasion and so on, which you know, sort of brings the feeling that those that are taxed more can evade it and there's issues like that. But I think this, this emphasis on uh, the dichotomy between income tax and social security contributions and that their progressivity was missing a little bit from, from, from the documentary and could have been interesting to uh, explore. Um, any other questions? Uh Yes, thank you. Uh, you talked about many countries, uh, but how would you explain the different levels of acceptance of taxes in different countries? For example, you talked about Scandinavia. How would that compare to Spain, for example? Um, is it a cultural thing? Is it a question of government efficiency? Is it a question of, of inequality? What would be the parameters of that? That's a good, good question. Uh, seems Very to be cultural. Um, I mean, Scandinavia in particular, to the extent that they were a part, a, a region of the world, a region of, of Europe that, that took a left turn sooner than others, maybe, maybe over the 30s and 40s, the idea of taxation became embedded. Maybe they, became, maybe they were more socially democratic uh, for a longer period than other countries and the, the two have gone hand in hand and, and maybe ultimately the you know the taxes the, the welfare state the the more public you know the, the pub, public services may, maybe also there is a macroeconomic uh, benefit to it so maybe their economies have become stronger as well so they may pay more they may pay more in taxes have more public services but they might have quite a lot left over just afterwards as well. So they, you know, they are richer countries. So maybe they they have been taken advantage of a virtuous circle, which has become embedded in. Whereas the U.S. and the U.K. We 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 seem to be uh, more vulnerable to to free market rhetoric, basically. Uh, and the the U.K. seems more closely linked with the United States than other economies on Europe and. And we've gone down their path quite often, so we, we, you know, we we have celebrated, at, well, try well, so we, the, you know, we're meant to be a low tax, you know, the, on the right, we're meant to be a low tax economy. We're not a low tax economy anymore, are we? We're a, we're a, we're a high tax economy, but there's not much economy. So we we've got the worst of both worlds, haven't we? We go, we pay relatively high taxes because we have a small economy. So. And maybe there's something a bit paradoxical about this, isn't it, about the UK situation, which is that we first introduced the income tax, didn't we? Uh, I mean, I'd say we, the UK, <laughs> uh, back in the late um, uh, 18th century. And, and yet, so we, we, yeah, we introduced it. We were supposed to have the highest consent to income tax, partly because we, uh, our people, was represented in Parliament and could vote on taxes. Um, but to some extent, today, acceptation of yeah. um, high tax levels is very low in this country overall, yeah, no, compared it's, to others. It's, I mean, it's, you know, it's, and it's changed. I, mean, I guess the point that we, I should stress is that it changed. You know, we did have 30 years after the war when it, when it was reasonably well accepted when 
top tax rates on income were very high, um, and, and it happened. But the, the 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 force of the Thatcher revolution was was, you know, unstoppable basically, and we're we're still living, I guess, in its shadow. Um, you know. There was an issue with uh, high taxation in the 70s, wasn't there? In, but it, I guess it was the case in most countries. But there was this issue mm. of bracket creep, wasn't there? Yeah. Which is that, like, because brackets, income tax brackets, weren't adjusted upwards to inflation, it meant that because of inflation and people were receiving higher wages, that suddenly they moved up a bracket, uh, so they got taxed more and more. And perhaps that fueled discontent mm. uh, about high tax rates and maybe i don't know about it maybe this needs to be researched further but maybe there are countries where um, these brackets weren't adjusted to inflation as much as in other countries maybe that might have led to different levels of consent i'm not sure um and there was another question here we have three minutes left <laughs> so the last question to jeff okay um, so in the UK... Well, maybe, if, okay, maybe a couple of more questions. We'll see how long it takes. Then we afterwards. Given that we've got currency sovereignty and the abolition of the gold standard, um, there's a kind of severed link now between um, tax and government spend. Um, yet the, the government and um, public debate um, seems to generally assume that there is a one-to-one -one link between the two. Um, how viable do you think it is to kind of change that conversation to... And kind of the benefits of taxes and their role on inflation um, influencing people's decisions and redistribution um, and yeah, kind of how um, important do you think it would be for that shift to happen? I mean, you know, it's, in, it, it's incredibly important. Um, we, you know, we are back in a, we are back in, you know, said, said Elliot, we're back in a austerity debate position and the, so therefore, at this moment, the, the voices claiming that we have to live within our means are, are louder than ever. I think, you know, my, my, my position is that it's it's been an incorrect argument. You know, that that was that was that, that, that along with Manoush's Manoush Shafiq, when we were looking to a new beverage report, there was a there was an understanding that you know, austerity didn't work. So there was a, you know, momentarily there was this sense that it didn't work and other ways. But as I say, we've, we've gone back to it. But because it didn't work, it can be shown not to work. You know, I've tweeted, God knows how many tweets this morning, um, demonstrating why it didn't work. So I think that, you know, the, the argument still has to be made. Um, you know, the, the, if, if they cut public services at the pace that they say they're going to cut them, you know, there's going to be nothing left, basically. So, they, you know, their, their public services are presently on their knees and we're told that there's going to be more cuts on top of it. So, yeah, so obviously one, one part of the answer is to make those who've, you know, the capital gains tax, to make those who can afford it pay more. But the other part is to have the argument and say this isn't even going to work in its own terms. You're going to, you're going to cut all this... You're doing it when interest rates go high. It's going to damage the economy even more. Your public finances will be in a bigger mess when it's done. So that wasn't a quick answer, was it? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe one last minute for one last question. So uh, in the f here with, yes, near the uh, stairs. 
thank you. Uh, so th the documentary talks about a lot about the Yellow West, and one of those like which sparked the movement was the tax on uh, carbon. And I was wondering, so we still have to finance it, kind of the transition of climate change, what would be a better way to impose the tax or whether taxation at all is the best way to financing the transition? Thank you. Thank you. A quick one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, I, I think there's a big, there's a dysfunction in the, in the economy and along with that dysfunction and, and that's a dysfunction that's been well i would argue it's been building for at least 40 years it exploded in 2008 we approach this dysfunction or the policy making institutions approach this dysfunction through a lens that still belongs to the dysfunction uh, so i don't really it seems hard to it, it seems hard to see how you can solve it within the existing, you know, the existing way of thinking. That doesn't make me a degrowth or an ungrowth or, or whatever. It just, it just says that there is, that this thing isn't being thought properly about. So taxes are obviously a part of it, but I think the the, the climate change, you know, the, like the green new, the green new deal type commentary is that you have to, you have to address while you address climate change, you have to address why the economy's gone wrong um, and how you can make it work better and I you know I you know I would still hark back to not necessarily the beverage report but what was done after the second world war as a way as a big step change in how you did the economy better um, and I kind of think that that that's what's that's what's required today and that's and there's probably a lot of politics behind this we have we've been, I talked vaguely about politics but I think there are issues of power behind the politics, and more equally as important issues about power behind the politics, which obviously we've run out of time for, but yeah. <laughs> I might add one last thing, yeah. which is yeah. that um, if we think about beverage and if we think about Roosevelt as well, uh, during, in these two periods, quite interestingly, we didn't have deficit spending. So in the 30s or in the late 40s, what we had was government uh, expenditure expansion coupled with increases in taxes, right, and especially on the wealthy. Uh, so it wasn't deficit spending. This was a balanced budget stimulus, uh, which was funded in a specific way, and especially with special taxes on certain parts of the population. Just want to add that. Okay, so um, thanks very much, Jeff. Um, thanks a lot for your questions. Thanks a lot for your yeah, answers. No, it's a pleasure. Sorry, I didn't know more about here. taxes. Um, <laughs> <laughs>